Hello and welcome to Raise Your Average. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor at AdvisorAnalyst.com. Co-hosting with me today is Rodrigo Gordillo, President at Resolve Asset Management Global. Our very special guest today is John DeGoey, Senior Investment Advisor and Portfolio Manager at Wellington Altus Private Wealth. He's the author of a multitude of books on money, investing, and the industry we're in, titled Stand Up to the Financial Industry, the Professional Financial Advisor Series, and his latest book just released, Bullshift, How Optimism Bias Threatens Your Finances. John has over a quarter century of experience as an advisor to professional and wealthy retail clients. In that time, he's built a stellar reputation for client responsiveness and helpful advice. He's one of only about 70 planners to be awarded a fellow of FPSC distinction and one of only eight people to be awarded the Donald J. Johnston Award for lifetime contribution to financial planning in Canada. Over the course of his career, he's had the privilege of meeting such industry giants as Nobel laureate Robert Schiller and industry icon John Bogle. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. John, welcome to the show. It's terrific to have you. We're excited to talk to you. Thank you, Pierre. Pleasure to be here. So, John, to kick things off, um, please tell us about the arc of your career, how you got into the business in the first place, and how you've evolved since then as an advisor and a PM and also as a person. <laughs> I guess the, uh, the question is, how much time do you have, Pierre? Because this could take some yeah. time. I, um, I'm one of the relatively few people in finance who actually uh, wasn't was was actually looking at working in government. So I did a graduate degree in public administration, a master's in public administration, which is like an MBA only for government. And uh, while I was doing that, it was a co-op program at Carleton in the nation's capital. And it had a uh, an opportunity for me to sit in on hearings with regard to what was then the, the new public policy of the goods and services tax, the GST. And uh, in, in my work in making briefing notes for the senior um, managers and government bureaucrats, I, I realized that I was a bit of a consumer advocate. And that sort of came out sort of unexpectedly. I, I, I didn't realize that that's what I was, but it became clear to me that that's sort of who my identity was. So when I moved to Toronto uh, with a degree in public administration and we had uh, Ray days and obviously there aren't a lot of jobs federally and there was a hiring freeze on provincially and there were no jobs at Queen's Park, I ended up having to take my skill set and uh, become a financial advisor because a lot of the core courses are the same. Over the course of my career, which is this is now my 30th year, uh, I've uh, developed an affinity for uh, financial planning principles and, uh, you know, developed a, a decent sized number of clients and I'm delighted to serve them. It's one of the great joys in, in, in life and is being able to help clients. But along the way, I've written maybe, I don't know, 200 articles and done a bunch of TV uh, spots. And uh, this is now my uh, my third book, uh, Bullshift. And in all cases, um, the books are being written in a way that helps consumers and advisors work more constructively together so that maybe helping consumers to sort of debunk what does and does not um, take part in the industry so they can understand the industry better and hopefully have a more productive relationship with their advisor. I think one thing I would remark about about uh, sort of knowing you by reputation and uh, having read some of your work over the years, 
uh, seen your articles in, in different places that, that you've published. Um, you've, you've never been afraid to go out on a limb, um, you know, in order to make a point to at, at both advisors and consumers. So, uh, you yeah. know, I think, I think that speaks a great deal to your, you know, your, your, your motivations and your, your agenda in the industry, what you're hoping to accomplish for your clients and, and also how you aim to help advisors. Yeah, I, I think uh, if there would be one overarching theme here, I, I think it would be a, uh, a commitment to evidence. And yeah. there are a lot of things that people uh, in the financial services industry, both advisors and investors, uh, that they hold to be true, that they believe to be true, but that are oftentimes less than true, and in some instances even demonstrably false. And so part of my job is to, is to help consumers to be better um, consumers of financial advice so that they can sort of uh, sift through the full shift and, and actually get uh, advice that's based on their own interests and based on things that can be proven as opposed to wife sales. Yeah, I would say, yeah. you know, I wouldn't say that John has been out on a limb. I like the, the idea when I, when I look back at everything John said over the years, I think it's speaking truth to power and power being kind of what the average industry member believes uh, the proper way of investing is, right? I mean, speaking about going out on the limb, let's talk about the title, bullshit. Um, <laughs> well, you how know what? optimism <laughs> bias threatens our finances. <laughs> it's a great title. Uh, Rod, Rod, thanks so much for correcting me. I think that's uh, maybe I used the wrong, the wrong idiom or the wrong <laughs> expression. But, but I think the, uh, I think, I think courageous is courageous is the sentiment. You know, you, you've you've never been afraid to say things that that you know some people just wouldn't you know might not want to tread there. And and so you yeah, you know well, your your willingness to go over the line you know that most people won't cross uh, is courageous. So yeah, thank you. I, I think there's a certain amount of career risk that comes with being being forthright and speaking truth to power, and and yeah. that's just the sort of thing that you you need to come to terms with. And I've made my peace a long time ago that it's not like I'm I'm not trying to annoy anyone. I'm not trying to get people upset, but. Uh, by the same token, I get upset when people say things that are less than truthful, and then and then I feel that it reflects on me if I don't correct it. Because wait, if you say things that are false, if someone says something that's false and I don't correct it, now I feel that I'm basically complicit in in what's being said. So uh, it's not even me even going that far out of my way to say certain things. I just correct things when I see things and hear things that are that are less than accurate. Well, so let's let's uh, John, let's talk about uh, bullshift, and because I, sure. I think it'll set the table for our entire, maybe a wider conversation around the topics that you've that you've opened up in the book. Um, first of all, what is it about? Okay, so I'm going to hold up a copy of it right here, so you guys can see it, of <laughs> course. But this is what it looks like if you're going to uh, look for it in the bookstore. Uh, uh, the subtitle is "How Optimism Bias Threatens Your Finance Finances." In the the basic premises, it's, it sounds a lot like another word, uh, and that's deliberate. But <laughs> most of the time, one of the things that I would say about optimism biases, because the book talks about many, many biases, and we all have them. Every single person on the planet has biases, um, and we can't avoid them. The best we can do is address them, manage them, be mindful of them, and, and try to mitigate the, the harmful effects of those biases. There are dozens of them, and um, most of them are at least somewhat harmful. Most people would agree or would say that in 
in their view, perhaps the best bias is optimism bias. So I sort of zigged when the industry zags by, by talking about the risk of optimism bias in particular. But it's the sort of thing where you, you need to realize that if you're not sufficiently prudent, not sufficiently careful, if you think, oh, this is going to be fine, that that's when, when you let your guard down, that's when you open yourself up to, to being broadsided because you weren't as careful as you might have been because you were told that everything was going to be fine anyway. So that's, in a nutshell, what the book is about. So the, you know, obviously we're uh, in an industry that's full of behavioral biases across the board, right? So mm -hmm. the question really is, is what do we, why, why did this happen? Um, why did we have this particular positive bias spin for a particular asset class? Because I think we're dominated in this world by equity risk across most portfolios. Why do we think we ended up here versus the plethora of other ways of, um, of dealing with both emotions and portfolio construction? One of the things advisors talk about, uh, one of the big selling points of the industry is that advisors can work as behavioral coaches. And there's, I'm actually being quoted in an article today uh, by, by a publication called Wealth Professional about a recent study from Russell, sort of talking about how advisors can sort of add value, quote unquote, uh, through their behavior, through a whole number of different things, but um, perhaps the most notable of those many things is behavioral coaching. And I think the, the easiest answer to your question, Rodrigo, is that if you think about what you want investors to do and what invest what successful investors have historically done throughout the generations, a lot of that is part and parcel with being optimistic, staying invested, not panicking doing the various things that are sort of sort of the financial investing 101, financial planning 101. And those are all things that are predicated on being optimistic about the future. And and don't get me wrong, I'm not a pessimist. I, I, I really, I bristle at anybody who accuses me of being a pessimist. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm inherently optimistic like everyone else. I just think that that optimism needs to be tempered with a reasonable degree of realism. And I think there are some people in the industry and some people who are clients of people in the industry and some people who just work as investors on their own as DIY people who are overly optimistic and don't even realize it. And it's not until uh, we actually have a significant downturn that these people will realize that they were overly optimistic. And unless and until we have one, the theory of, of what bullshit uh, uh, involves and the risk that people are taking as a result of an optimism bias remains largely untested. So I guess what I should say is the book gets if we have an event, uh, if markets do something like what they did in the 30s with the depression, none of us have ever experienced that. It was 75 years ago and all investors today think, oh, it's fine. Whatever happened in, you know, in 74, I, I read about that. And what happened in 87, I read about that, but we got through that. But then we have like the, the, the technology bubble at the turn of the millennium and the global financial crisis. And, they got through that too. And in fact, even COVID, which was just a little over three years ago, people say, oh, I, I got through that. Well, geez, peak the trough. That was only a five-week drawdown. Like, yeah, of course he got through it. It wasn't that long. But what happens if we actually have a situation where, and here's an example that I'd like to use. Um, you guys would know this. The, the Nikkei 225 hit its all-time high in December of 1989. It still hasn't gotten back to that level. Mm -hmm. And people who say they're long-term investors, um, they can be a long-term investor, but when they talk about that, what they have in mind is <laughs> some people say, well, 
I got through the COVID crisis because I'm a long-term investor. It was five weeks. What you need to do is you need to realize it could be five years and it could be 10 years. And a lot of people um, who think they're ready, who think they're prepared, who have said they're psychologically sort of prepared for it, they don't know because they've never actually had to do it. So I'm not saying they're not prepared, but I'm concerned that some of them won't be prepared because what they think they are prepared for is is going to be a walk in the park compared to what they might actually experience at some point. We've been we've been you know I, I think to go just to circle back to your optimism bias we've been led to believe that that you know if you just wait if you're patient um, things will turn around. But I, I liked uh, there was something that you quoted in your um, is an article from last year from February of last year that that's uh, you've got posted on your site. Uh, John, which was the the acronym Tiara, and yeah. you know, we 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 heard all about Tina and all about FOMO, you know, during during the 2020-21 period. Um, we spent, I mean, Rod, we spent we spent basically the entire year of 22 of of uh, 21 and 22 talking about alternatives and strategies and. You know, it was all during a time, at least in 21, it was all during a time when nobody was interested in alternatives. I mean, they were there, they're available, they're accessible, you know, especially, you know, since 2019, um, if you're high net worth, they were always accessible. And, and, uh, but the impetus to do that just wasn't there because 60, 40, you know, bonds and stocks were doing, continuing to do great right up to the very end of 21. So, you know, here we are. We've had all of 22 to contemplate what to do with a 60-40 portfolio. Um, we've had all, we had all of 2022 20, versus 2020, of course, is the context I'm saying it in, to to you know adjust our portfolios, to add alternatives, to look at alternative strategies, to contemplate uh, doing different things. And I love that that you know that was actually reading your article, uh, John. That was the first time I saw that that uh, acronym, that crafty little acronym, Tiara, which is there is a real alternative. Exactly. And, so, so thanks, oh, Tiara. Right. I, I'm pretty yeah. cheeky. I, I come out with these things. Uh, the bullshift is yeah. a cheeky idea. Stand up is a long winded acronym. It stands for scientific testing and necessary disintermediation underpin professionalism. Yikes! That's yeah. a hard thing to say. But yeah, there is a real alternative, and and I think a lot of people are so blinkered in their their ongoing commitment to traditional ways of doing things that when when new things come forward, new things sometimes take longer than they ought to to become adopted because uh, my experience is that the financial services industry is is quite conservative and no one wants to go first with something that's new and different uh, or people seldom, obviously someone has to go first, but most people are reticent to go early on to be early adopters because they um, are, are are mindful of well, what if it doesn't work out? Now I'm going to be the one who looks bad because I brought this new idea to my clients and it didn't work out. So you go first, and if it works out, <laughs> then fine. Uh, but but you know I, I don't want to go first because no matter how much the um, the, the logic, the back tests, the the various evidence might be, uh, a lot of people are just afraid to to be the one who goes on on a limb. Uh, for fear that uh, their clients will hold them personally responsible if things don't work out exactly yeah. as they, they, they yeah. sort of pre- preset the expectation. I really, takes, I had a takes... very in, interesting conversation today with a large advisory group in in Canada, and we had we got we made it to the final 
you know, part of the conversation, you see the, the value add of doing something that adds more balance to your portfolio during inflationary regimes and bear markets, blah, blah, blah. And it ultimately came down to, you know what, it's just a problem is if I take this to the department, the, the compliance department, they're going to put it in this high risk. And, you know, how do I explain high risk to clients? It's just too much for me. And, um, you know, what I said to them is like, if you're going, if, if for whatever reason, I'm not, I'm not calling a shot here, but for whatever reason, and we end up in a period like that 2000 and 2010 period or the 1970s to 1980 period, then you're going to be uncomfortable either way. You're going to be uncomfortable with, with having bonds and equities being highly correlated most of the time and providing very low returns that your clients really can't live off of, right? So you're either having to, to deal with the pain over the next 10 years with clients, or you're going to have to deal with the pain of learning about what you need to do in order to create balance in portfolios, speaking with your compliance department to make sure they understand that you understand the risk and why it's actually less likely to be less risky. And, and there's no ifs, ends, and buts about it. You just simply have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Right? You just, yeah. that's it. And it's one or the other. You got to choose but, your poison. Ron, well, I have a thought. I, I have a thought. Sorry, John. And just quickly, um, I have a thought, which is, you know, when is the compliance officers conference? I don't know. <laughs> you know, when when do they get together for a, for a powwow, you know, for a, a com compliance officer jamboree, like where, where, you know, where you could actually get an opportunity as a practitioner in, in alternatives to speak to that group of officers and educate but, them on but it's they know the you know what Pierre, risk. what i said it, to what i said to this group is that these are reasonable departments these are reasonable people and when i yeah. was doing private wealth back in the day i invested 100% of my clients portfolios in this very unorthodox approach that they were originally uncomfortable with but i put together the time laid out the case put together a report showed them the risk adjusted results and how this would be better long term and that i'm fully explain these to clients up front and they're okay with the tracking error. And guess what? They said yes. They signed off on it, right? So yeah. it's a, it's just a matter of you have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable and talking to your compliance department, putting in the work, understanding it, and making sure that you're not caught in this bullshit where you've been yeah. sold that that's the only way to manage money and it really isn't. Right. So it takes it takes grit though, doesn't it? It takes a certain yeah. amount of grit and it or, takes courage. or a decision to do it. Right. Because again I, I, it's it's gonna be Tough either way. I absolutely, you so, know, by the way, Rod, I absolutely love your story, you know, about the 08, 09 period and what you went through. And, it, you know, and I say, I love it. I love it. But it's a point, it's almost a poignant tale, you know, like where, where, you know, you did the right things, but there was, there was another price to pay for it. Not, not the, the direct pain of loss, but, but, you know, sticking out like a sore thumb somewhere. <laughs> You know, especially right? on, and, as, and as the bull as the bull recovered the next yeah. uh, year in '09, right? Being being yeah. a source of so, resentment. <laughs> so this is it, and right, and we need to. Yeah. I think it starts with education. I think John, what you're doing yeah. in your book is exactly what the Canadian audience needs. Um, but let's let's talk a little bit about how you know we talked about the bull shift mentality and the um, the behavioral flaws that come with it, but. Let's start shifting away from from the bullish scenario and talk about what you, what do we think advisors and investors uh, need to start thinking differently about in order to um, move away from that paradigm in case we get a 1970s style. Decade. What 
without without getting into a forecast. So what what I'm gonna what I'm about to say is not a forecast, but rather a cautionary tale, a what if. And I don't know what the future holds, but if we have a major drawdown, uh, the, the first thing you can do is you can sort of sit down with yourself or with uh, with your advisor if you're working with an advisor or if you're working on your own and and write down what you commit to and how much can you how much of a drawdown can you withstand and 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 what will you do if you experience that and 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 do you resolve to um, stick with it uh if you experience something that that and if not uh when when will you change your strategy and when will you de-risk because obviously the best time to de-risk or to reduce the risk is is before there's a major drawdown but of course if we knew that with with perfect hindsight uh we wouldn't be having podcasts like this because everyone would do it in advance uh, i think i think the the point that i would make is that a lot of wearing my financial planning hat uh, a lot of people that i come across use planning assumptions for rates of return that are uh, oftentimes in the high single digits and fp canada where i'm an active volunteer you mentioned this off the top here um, they're yeah. saying that the you know a reasonable expected expected return for equity is somewhere between six and a half and seven percent, and for income it's more like two and a half or three percent, and that's for the benchmark. And then you've got to take off the cost of your products and the cost of your advice, and uh, what you're oftentimes left with is a at best mid single digit return expectation for a for a reasonably balanced portfolio and even a very aggressive low cost portfolio. Will still be a you know medium to high single digit return expectation and not much more, and so a lot of people when you think about the combination of returns being lower, uh, risks being higher, and longevity being more of a, an ongoing reality that people used to you know 30 40 years ago people would retire at 65 and be dead at 72. Well now they retire at 62 and they live to be 85. And if you're working with wealthy people like I do, uh, professionals, because of lifestyle and and, ha- and, and health and, and better you know medical understanding of what they can be doing, a lot of them live to be well over 90. So now we're talking about a, a life in retirement that could last 30 years. And if you have a, a life in retirement that's four times longer than your dad or your granddad, and the returns are lower... Uh, are you sure you saved enough? Because a lot of people think they have, because they're yeah. using paradigms that are that are rather dated. And, uh, and you know, no one wants to be the bearer of bad news and say, "Well, actually, Mr. Jones, yes, you've you've you know got an nest egg of one and a quarter million dollars, but given the burn rate that you're talking about, you and your spouse going through, and given what we believe is a reasonable assumption for your actuarial um, projections going forward for the two of you." you probably have to work another three or four years and then save actively, save a large percentage of that money for those three or four years in order to retire uh, and stay retired with the lifestyle that you're telling me you want to be able to, to, to realize. That's a difficult message for a lot of people to deliver uh, if they're giving advice. And again, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news. Don't, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just saying <laughs> that the reality is that um, a lot of people will... Uh, have their clients be disappointed, but their clients are happy now. Uh, their disappointment's going to come in twenty or thirty years when they realize that that they were bullshifted in twenty twenty three. Yeah, I, there's you. You can't say enough for aggressive capital assumptions and and uh, overly conservative longevity uh, calculations. You know, uh, <laughs> that's that's. Uh, 
you, you, you know, it's, it's better to have the pain now and the, and the, uh, the pleasure later than the pleasure now and the pain later. Um, you know, and in retirement, people have very few options, obviously, uh, available to them to make up for those kinds of mistakes. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's something, Rod, that's something you you guys have talked about a lot too, which is, you know, it's one of the core principles that guides your practice as well, which is making sure that, that you're doing the right thing for, for your investors, making sure that, that, you know, those, those things are, are born in mind as well. Right. It's just making sure that we are coming at this problem of investing yeah. with eyes wide open. That's it. That's really what it is. Because right now we've gone through, and, and I don't blame anybody. This is just human nature, right? We've gone 40 years from 1981 to basically 2020, 40 years of this, the great moderation, right? A, an amazing decade in humanity where we opened up ourselves globally to global trade, cheap labor, abundant liquidity, persistent positive growth. And in that environment, what kept floating to the top was domestic equities and domestic bonds were going to win. This is the, these are the asset classes that, that are going to do best. I mean, the idea of a 60-40 portfolio is less of a theoretical framework and more of an empirical framework of people's lived experiences identifying how markets, look what's working, right? I like that, that, that equity and that bond, but more equity than bond because I want to make more returns. And they kept reinforcing that because year after year, we know upfront that, the, that disinflationary growth is good for those two asset classes, right? But maybe John, you can speak to the risks of only having that myopic view of history uh, of the last 40 years and, and what you suggest for people to think about in terms of risks that they may not be currently covering. Good. So that's a great uh, intro, Rod. So what a lot of people haven't thought of is that from the very early 80s until really the end of 2022, we had a 40-year-long bull market bonds. So the great moderation, perhaps you are referring to you know, the, the, the globalization and, and other things as well. But to me, uh, the defining experience, the investing lives of virtually everyone watching this presentation today is that they have been investing exclusively until the end of 2022 beginning of 20, uh, until the end of 2021 in a in a prolonged sustained uh, overarching bull market in bonds that has provided a tailwind and pushed things forward and that 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 bull market in bonds is now over we we we've had not only have we had significant rate hikes in 2022 and they will be continuing at least until the beginning of 2023 um, but but in addition to that, we, we've got this ongoing inflationary pressure that will cause rates to stay high-ish, suggesting they're going to be uh, ridiculously high. But even rates at three and a half or four or four and a quarter percent will be higher than most people have experienced in the recent past. And they'll be complaining about, oh, I don't know how we can possibly you know make ends meet because I have all this debt, I have this mortgage. Look what's happening to my mortgage payments. Look what's happening to my debt load uh, and my line of credit and whatnot. In fact, these uh, rates at around 4% are not radically out of line with what they have been on average throughout history. It's just that a lot of people have become spoiled in the past 40 years. And they think that the recent past or the past of their entire investing lifetime is somehow going to be a prologue to what the future holds. And I don't think that's a reasonable assumption. 
And so now we have to, again, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but I think a lot of people haven't really stopped, thought about it, taken a sober assessment of the world that we live in right now, and then said, okay, well, the world has changed. How is my investing strategy going to change? What, what will my asset mix look like? Can I maybe incorporate some alternatives? Can I maybe revisit the idea of 60-40 as being the best way to do things? And the answer is not necessarily you have to change, but can you at least think about it? Is that much to ask <laughs> that you can at least reflect upon what you're doing right yeah. now? And given that we're in a situation right now where we have the most prolonged and most severely inverted yield curves on, in both Canada and the U.S. in modern history, and we're still hiking rates into this inverted yield curve. If you think you can skate through this, bully for you, good for you. I, I you know, I, I more power to you. I, for one, cannot in good conscience say that you should just keep on doing what you're doing without stopping and reflecting upon what you're doing and whether or not you should assess what could possibly go wrong. And again, that's not a, it's not a prediction that it will go wrong, but I think you're being foolhardy if you don't acknowledge that there's a reasonable, in fact, a strong chance that something can and will go wrong. This has been, I think this is the most widely anticipated recession that as a date of recording, <laughs> uh, it hasn't even happened yet. But everyone says it's going to happen. So if it happens, don't anybody come back to me and say, oh, I didn't see it coming. Or why didn't anybody warn you? My goodness, everyone's been telling you this has been coming for at least the past five or six months. You know, we, we had the, uh, the, uh, the chairman of the Federal Reserve going around in Jackson Hole back in August, five months ago, saying there will be pain. And we haven't really experienced pain yet. So you think because we haven't experienced in the past five months, we're not going to experience? I don't think so. There, so there is an element, are, I mean, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Rod. So I just, I'm, I'm curious. So we have identified that there's a, there's a hole in understanding. You, what you're advocating is for people to take a look at whether that's enough. You mentioned alternatives. Like what are the things that investors and advisors can start taking a look at to open their eyes and open up the perspectives to shift away from 60 and 40? So. Well, the one thing I like to ask people is, when was the last time you really reread your investment policy statement? And, and if you've reread it recently, when was the last time you rebalanced to reflect that investment policy statement? And if you are, in fact, concerned about things being frothy uh, and the investment policy statement calls for, let's say, 60-40, but it's allowed a 10% a wiggle room, um, maybe you could put 10% into alternatives. Maybe you could go from 60-40 down to 50-50 but what, what are you doing to take risk off the table if, in fact, you can see that there's a, a, a likely storm brewing on the horizon? Maybe you can go from growth stocks to value stocks. Maybe you go from long-duration bonds to shorter-duration bonds. Maybe you can do a little bit of all of the above. I'm not telling you what to do, but I'm telling you to at least look at what you're doing to see what works for you. Well, yeah, very very well put, Sean. I, I think the... Um, I think the... the, the the choice that investors have been making most recently in the last two quarters is de-risking in favor of short-term instruments and short-term bonds, short-term credit, right? To take advantage of those yields that frankly, they weren't there, you know, a year and a half ago, two years ago. Even um, one year ago. Yeah. So there, I mean, that's, that's, that's the new, that's not an alternative. It's just cash. It's, you know, it, it's cash instruments or short-term instruments, short-term bonds. But, but, but that's period. not, so what I'm saying is that yeah. that elite house is something you've looked at it. You haven't just, you haven't just slept walking yeah. your way through setting it and forgetting it. You've at least stopped 
you've had a careful, purposeful reflection about what you're doing and why you're doing it and what, if anything, you could be doing differently. And at a minimum, you should be doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I and think that, that's the, basically, the that's thing, basically, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, Rod. Go ahead. I think the interesting thing about all this is, you know, you have a, a change in yields in the short end, right? One of the other changes that we've experienced going back to your investment policy statement, John, is that what are we, why are we doing these allocations, right? Historically, we want to have some bonds and we want to have some equities so that you can have two pistons in a motor that kind of offset each other in good and bad times, right? And what that has done historically when thinking about investment policy statements is you can kind of put a little thumbnail as to what type of volatility, maximum losses you can expect when indeed the equities and bonds are offsetting each other. And so we've experienced a level of volatility um, over the last 40 years that's run around 10 to 12% annualized standard deviation, okay? So just to put a number on it. That is because of non-correlation. It's because of zigging and zagging. Over the last year, when equities and bonds have moved together, what's happened to the risk in that investment policy statement? What's happened to that portfolio? The Stop, risk yeah. has gone up. Yeah, We're seeing two pistons move up together. Right. So you got to examine your investment policy statement and what the purpose of it was, which was protect downside, given your your personal willingness to take a downside correction, you know, protect the ups and downs and the, the gyrations of your portfolio, because that's a little scary. And then you have to do something about it. Maybe a first step is to add some cash so you can get back down. If your investment policy statement, they can back, yeah. get back down to the volatility, but you might be leaving some returns on the table and other options. Other options to look at are now with the new liquid alternatives. Um, uh, rules that allow you to invest in something that is a third piston in the portfolio that may zig when everything else is zagging, you might be able to even reduce portfolio risk further, right? Going back to the why equities and bonds reduce risk in the portfolio in the first place, if you find something that is going up when equities and bonds are going down, then you're in good shape, right? So these are the areas that you need to be, be aware exist that didn't exist even two years ago. Examine the landscape, right? I think you would you would endorse this, John. Like the idea, again, is is really to just Take a step back and reassess yeah. everything, right? Do I know the same thing? Do I understand the world in the way that I thought I did? And I, I was doing it myself. I was looking at uh, exercise periodicity, uh, and I was convinced that uh, the way to exercise is to periodize, you know, strength and hypertrophy and and uh, and aerobic exercise because I was the Bible 15 years ago. But I took some time off over the week, over the December to reread the material and the latest research shows that it's not necessary, right? But I've been going on a 15 year old playbook, right? So we all need to do this in every aspect of our lives and, and our personal finances are the ones that needed the most, I think. It's, it's hard. A lot of people, um, once you, we're, we're lazy. People are inherently lazy. I, I freely acknowledge that I am, it can be lazy too. Once you've got something that's more or less figured out, once you're pretty sure you know what you're doing, um, you, you Oftentimes, people tend to stop being curious. They just say, oh, I got that down. And they move on to something else in their life. And um, the irony is that what you have down was what was down for five or 10 years ago. But in 2023, um, you're, you're actually, you're, you're, you haven't kept up. And it's difficult for anyone to acknowledge that they haven't kept up. Especially if they think of themselves, if their self-image is one of, no, I'm a responsible person. I don't, I don't do anything recklessly. And they don't think of not keeping up as being reckless. And it isn't necessarily, but it certainly can be. And it's, I, I'm going to pound my fist on the table, reflect, stop, see, review. Don't just, don't just think that you're fine. 
continue doing what you've always done on the assumption that it's always worked in the past and therefore the past is prologue and it's going to work in the future because that's when it bites you. When you become complacent, when you become full of hubris, when you think, oh yeah, this is fine, that's when you get hit with the bullshit and the optimism bias sort of bites you more than more than anything else that you could have expected. Yeah. And to that, to the, to your point, John, I think, you know, I, I said, I brought up the fact that, that, you know, a lot of investors have moved to de-risk, um, but that wasn't a proactive thing. Yeah. That was a reactive, exactly. that was a reaction to the fact that both yeah. equities and bonds were falling, yeah. you know, prior to the end of 21, you know, you couldn't have enough money ri at risk and, and uh, following you know, the, uh, the change in, in, in tack of the fed and central banks in general, um, you know, you had too much at risk and, and, but the reaction, like, so, so I, I think the key is, is also just to get into discussion about, you know, if you're going to be reflecting on your portfolio, you're going to be reflecting on your financial planning, your outlook, uh, you know, all of your, you know, beliefs that brought us to this place that we're at now, um, you also have to, you know, you also have to take a more proactive stance as well in, in, in portfolios. It's not a matter of just reacting. Uh, the, the market seems to be like on a hair trigger, you know, at, at, at every, you know, word that comes out of uh, Jerome Powell's mouth, um, you know, and, and waiting for some indication that they're going to pause because the pause is, you know, the pause, the pause. And, and, you know, that's like, that's, you know, that's become akin to the put. But it's it's not quite the put. I mean, I, I think you know the pause is just the pause. It's not pause and then cut. It's it could be pause and then pause some more and pause for more. It could be pause for years, as far as anyone knows, uh, until until the central bank and until central banks, the Fed is satisfied that they have kept at it long enough. You know, as keeping at it, as as uh, Paul Volcker once said, and as Jerome Powell has has echoed. Um, you know, how long can they keep at it? And, and so really the question becomes, you know, what can you do now to create a, or, or to uh, change or modify your portfolio so that, so that it takes that into account, so that it takes the uncertainty of all of that, of what a long, longer, you know, higher rates for longer means, uh, to the market, how inflation volatility is react, you know, causes certain reactions in the market or dislocations in the market. You know, China coming on stream now, for example, could put a wrench in the works. Uh, you know, we, we got used to China being on this zero COVID thing, uh, you know, on a zero COVID mission. And now that they've opened up and they've reopened and they're, they're, they're looking to get back into the, the global economy again uh, under norm, more normal circumstances, yeah, that growth or that consumption from China uh, could set things back again in terms of the expectations that, that people have, have, uh, built up, you know, so you see this hair trigger reaction, you know, the market, I don't know if it's just short sellers covering because you know, they, they got, they got scared because, you know, the fed might indicate a pause or, you know, they, they're, that, that's, that's obviously a big risk. You know, that's like, that's, a, that's one kind of buyer in the market that drives prices up. Um, but, you know, that kind of, of, of hair, you know, hair triggered sort of optimism that we got used to the last decade, uh, it's not really found, it's not, it's not very well founded now. So, 
So, John, I, I think just to transition in our in our conversation, you know, what are what are some of the what are some of the ways? What are, what are some of the like baby steps towards you know adding alternatives to portfolios? What what kind of investments are are you know? I mean, just in a general headings, of course. But what kind of what kind of alternatives can can be the starting point of the journey to adding alternatives? The thing that I would uh, point out for your viewers is that everyone's fighting the last war, and everyone is assuming that the uh, what happens in capital markets uh, now will be akin to what has happened in the past. And I think the first thing that I would say is disabuse yourself of that notion that things can in fact be different without going into too much detail i'm not comfortable talking about exactly which asset classes i think there are four or five different broad alternative strategies and alternative types of products out there and if you were to look at a traditional again just as a standard 60 40 portfolio um depending on who you're working with, what the compliance department says, what your appetite for risk is, how certain products are rated because some will be considered high risk as, as Ron has said, and others will be maybe some other forward-looking compliance departments will say, well, the underlying is, is such that uh, you know the standard deviation means that it should just be a medium risk product, even though it's an OM mm -hmm. product, for instance. You know, a lot of people will just say, if it's an offering memorandum product, it's high risk just by virtue of it being an OM. And I, I think that's it's that kind of overly facile way of looking at things that is dangerous on the other side, because again, it's the old school way of looking at things. And you want to have firms and advisors that can be a little more thoughtful and just look under the hood and say, okay, well, what actually works? But what specifically what I would say is without naming asset classes, you want to find things that have reasonable risk adjusted returns up and by themselves, but specifically uh, those things that have reasonable risk adjusted returns on a weekly or, or non-correlator or, or ideally even best not negatively correlated basis because what you're really trying to do is to maintain the 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 optimism that's required to stay invested for the long run it does no one any good if they build a portfolio that they think is right for them and let's say it's 60 40 and they think 60 40 is right for them because it has been throughout their entire lives and now they they're 60 40 does something rather less than anything that they've experienced before. And in fact, 60-40 in 2022 was one of the, I think, three or four worst years in all of recorded history for a 60-40 right. portfolio. So, uh, and it, it, I'm not suggesting this is going to happen, but it wouldn't shock me if 2023 was broadly similar, certainly on the equity side. I, I don't think the income side is going to see that kind of a, uh, you know, a, a drawdown again. Um, and so, Everyone's fighting the last war. Everyone's playing the team, this game reactively. But if you're listening to this at home and you're thinking about what you could do, there's still time to proactively look at things that you can put in your portfolio that can manage the risk going forward, irrespective of whether or not you did anything looking backward. Yeah, now, John, I wasn't yeah, trying I to uh, I wasn't trying to pigeonhole you into an outlook on any given asset class, but no, but okay. there are obviously there's the plain vanilla type of alternatives that are out there as alternatives or assets that are low correlate, you know, have a lower correlation or uncorrelated to equities or bonds, um, you know, like real estate and infrastructure. And so without without actually making an opinion about either or, 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 or asking you for that, I think, you know, or gold, gold, real assets, you know, in, in, in the uh, in the, you know, sort of simpler commodities uh, that you could choose from. And then 
you know, from there, you can obviously look at commodities. Um, you know, Rod, that's your cue. You can look at, you could, you know, you can look at commodities then then, you know, from there you can, you can start looking at, at, you know, more advanced alternative strategies, um, you know, like, right. like anti-beta type strategies or, or strategies that are, you know, long, short merger arb, you know, like there's all, there's, there's so many, like, so you could go from the very simple alternative set, the plain vanilla alternative set that are, you know, asset categories that have historically low correlation, um, to, uh, you know, hedge fund type alternatives, which are structurally correlated in some way or uncorrelated to, to the traditional portfolio. Right. So, so, you know, I, I think also the plain vanilla type investments are, are naturally are said to be naturally uncorrelated, but as you get into the more advanced, you know, structural products where, where you have hedging and long short type situations or, 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 um, risk parity or, you know, you, you're getting into st strategies that are structurally uh, uncorrelated so that, so that when, uh, correlations go to one, like we saw with equities and bonds last year, those uns those, those structurally uncorrelated assets stay uncorrelated. Right. So, yeah. so. That's... So what I would say, Pierre, is that if you should be prepared to have, uh, at least two strategies and I don't think, uh, it's useful, it's particularly useful to have a less than 5% exposure to any given asset class or strategy. So I, I would think that at a minimum, people should be looking at two of the laundry list things that you talked yeah. about at 5% each, that would be the minimum and, and three or four at 5% each, or maybe two at 10 or, or, you know, one at five and two at seven and a half or something like that. I think less than 5%, it's, it's almost, it's sort of the, the marginal utility of adding a diversifier with at such a low exposure is, is questionable. Uh, but then it, then it becomes a question of your appetite and who you're working with and what will they allow you to go to 15 or 20 or 25% militarians and many firms won't, but you know, however, I guess maybe the first in order of business that you have to look at is, well, how far, if I wanted to go further down this road, how far would I even be allowed to go based on uh, who I'm working with? Uh, and then from there you say, okay, well, I've only got pick a number 15% that I can allocate toward alternatives. Uh, a, where's that money going to come from? Maybe it comes 10 from equity mm -hmm. and five from income. I don't know. I'm just saying. And, and then it's like, okay, well now I've got four or five, six different ways of playing this alternative game. Maybe I should find three and put 5% into each of them. And so it's sort of like a sequential thing. Okay. Let's be purposeful. Let's not just use a shotgun and, and just, you know, write off in all directions. Let's think about how far can we go? How far do we want to go? Where is it going to come from? What are we trying to achieve? And, and how can we actually get to a point where the, the overall portfolio will allow us to stay invested? One of the things that I talk about in the book that we haven't touched on yet is prospect theory. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the work done by, by Danny Kahneman yep. and, and Amos Tversky. So these guys have shown pretty clearly that, and the evidence is overwhelming, that the, uh, the pain of a loss is oftentimes twice as severe as the joy of a gain. So if you can just avoid large losses, uh, that alone is, is going a long way to not only meeting your financial objectives, but also allowing you to sleep well at night and, and not be stressed at work and, you know, getting along with your spouse and your kids and whatever else, because you're not diverted into being stressed about things that, uh, you know, in the past didn't use to stress you. But if we have a, a major drawdown, they, they, they might. Yeah, myopic you know, loss aversion is the biggest yeah. thing that uh, that we struggle with as human beings, right? So, I mean, the issue ultimately is the fact that 
most years in the S&P 500 or Canadian developed equities, most years you're seeing pretty solid results, right? Like, and, and so what are you asking people to do? We're asking people to allow to have a non-correlated stream just in case there's a bear market, just in case there's some inflation. What that ultimately leads, ultimately leads to is diversification, which we at first blush feels really good and sounds really nice. But they only want the diversification, in my experience, <laughs> that makes money at the same time as the rest of their portfolio, yeah. right? They don't want the diversification that they don't want, right? And you get diversification even when you don't want to. And sometimes that means taken away from that year's return as you give back some of the money that your alternative you know, asset class or, um, or an alternative investment vehicle has done for you in the previous year, right? So this is the, the big issue again is going back to bullshit is that we have, we have, um, indoctrinated people so much to, to really, really care about the yearly results of equities without the recognition that a single year can take your annualized returns from 15% annualized to five, right? Yeah. That's the problem there. And then, and then because of myopic loss aversion, at the worst possible moment, many people who don't feel they know what's going on are making bad decisions about their future and their investments and not allowing to, for that recovery to happen, right? So you, yeah, you and that just compounds it, um, yeah. hurt yourself uh, in terms of uh, annualized compound return, right? So I think we need to really have uh, more and more education on why you should not care about those double digit returns most years. Because you never know when that double-digit negative return comes and takes and wipes all that away, right? It's the uh, the uh, and one of the yeah. one of the behavioral quirks is anchoring, and and unfortunately, if your portfolio was worth you know eight hundred ninety thousand uh, dollars in January of twenty twenty two, and then your portfolio uh, drifted downward, and now you're at you know seven hundred twenty six thousand dollars or whatever, um, you're still anchored on that higher number because you had that money. It was there. It was you, you can see it for it was real to you. It was in your portfolio. Yeah. It was on your statement, uh, and you've, you've got tangible proof of, look, look, your honor, this is what I had. I really did have this. Uh, <laughs> and, and now it's like, well, why can't I still have that? Well, um, risk and return are related. If you want to be able to get a higher long-term return, you've got to be prepared to accept uh, a certain degree of risk in order to get that. Uh, but human nature being what it is, people just- Yeah, it's, the, like it's all the anchoring, the right? So you really- that. The cost of you really have out. to be a very special human being to buck the trend. But I think, you know, I remember by the end of 09, people were thinking differently, right? Yeah. Um, and so maybe it takes a few punches in the gut to force us yeah. to wake up and, and do something better long term. Um, hopefully not. You know, the, the ideal thing would be to think, reassess, educate yourself and, and demand the right thing from your professional advisor or yourself. Um, and that does require putting things in your, like I said, I love the, uh, the piston analogy in the motor, right? You want things that are pushing the car forward in a smooth way over time. And that requires things going up and things going down. And that creates yep. a smoother ride. If you have, sadly right now, it's not even 60, 40, let's be honest, right? Up until 2020, it was, it, it became 80, 20. Maybe yeah. the 20 wasn't really government bonds. It was more like private credit or something like more that, that, that gets affected by growth. So all of a sudden you have this big, massive piston that's kind of, you know, getting you, getting you really uh, strong and high speeds under normal circumstances with a paved road. But the moment you hit some gravel, you need that bond, you need that 
maybe that commodity, that gold, that alternative sleeve to smooth out that um, the performance of that car. When, when the bulls like, are you know, running to your... deep, slow in, in rebalancing their portfolio because, you know, the old city is, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. As long as you're making mm-hmm. money, oh, we can we can push off the rebalancing until next quarter or maybe the quarter after that. We're fine. We're fine. And you're unwittingly taking on more risk. And as long as the, 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 the downturn doesn't rear its ugly head, you don't even realize it. You're actually rewarded for doing it. But... At some point, the music's going to stop. You might find yourself without a chair. And and then what? And as, as long as you really are okay with that, and it's easy to say you'll be okay with it as long as the, the music is playing and, and you're making money. But let's let's just see. Someday, I don't know when, someday the music's going to stop. And, and, I, and even though we had a fairly significant drawdown already in 2022, I don't think we're out of the woods personally. I may be wrong. I hope I don't. But yeah, uh, well, I, 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 I'm worried so, about how people are going to react the next time there's a major drawdown, whenever it is. So there, there's, 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 there's two kinds of, there's two main objectives of alternatives, right? There's return enhancer. Alternatives can either, can either be return enhancers, like uncorrelated return enhancers, or they can be uncorrelated volatility reducers. Not on their own, but in the context of a portfolio, right? I mean, I think, I think, I think when when compliance, you know, or or when investors look at at alternatives on a standalone basis, it's very hard to see what that like. Why would I buy this, right? If you look at a long term alternative that has a particular strategy and, and and an intended outcome, if you look at it by itself, you're looking at it and you're wondering. Why would I ever want to own this thing? Look at it. You know, when the market was strong, it was doing nothing, right? Because and then we're we're sort of programmed as to this, uh, you know, optimism bias that that everything that you own should be doing well all the time, right? And and uh, and then we get upset when it's not, and we're you know we're saying, oh, I wish I had taken money off the table. I wish I had moved the you know reduced my risk last year. Um, to your point, John, or earlier, um, but the the the. If the objective is either return enhancement or volatility mitigation or some, you know, in between some combination of those two, um, and it, and it should only be made in the context of a portfolio, not on a standalone alternative basis in the, for the, for, you know, for the most part, and I'm not saying all alternatives are the same. You could own a, a hedge strategy as a long-term holding and, and be quite happy with it. Assuming your your capital assumptions are are uh, the right place, um, but that's that's part of the problem. I think when in, when when investors look at a standalone alternative, they can't see why they would want to own it because they don't have the context, right? So it has to always be like when when if as an advisor, you're going to present it to your clients as something they should add to their portfolio, then it should be done in the context of their portfolio. Here's your portfolio that you've owned for the last five or ten years, uh, give or take, you know, a few changes and rebalancings. Uh, I mean, if you can provide that, and then and then and then reallocate historically, like like some, you know, a back test to show here's what your portfolio would look like in 2022 if this alternative was in there. That would be a a, a better way of showing clients, showing the end investor. Uh, how the alternative performs in the context of the portfolio. And then, and then maybe the light bulbs go off then 
and and they're able to say, okay, now I get it. I wouldn't have bought this thing like I wanted to buy Tesla two years ago or three years ago. I would have, you know, I would have bought this thing because I wanted to avoid losing money. And and that 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 I think has the potential to, you know, when when you're able to add, I don't want to go on too long, but when you're uh, when you're able to add alternatives to a portfolio that actually smooth the ride, as Rod was talking, you know, that that piston analogy, where you, where you have you know a, a V6 or V8 engine, all the pistons are moving at different times in different directions, uh, up or down. I mean, it's not all different directions. Sorry. Um, great great analogy, Rod. I don't want to destroy it. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. We're you all know, we're all but, expanding but, and trying to communicate as best we can here on these. Uh, but you know, things, you, right? you know, I think that's the that's the part. I think that's the part that investors have a hard time if if they look at the standalone strategy. You know, it's not very exciting, or or it's very complicated. And and I think that's the challenge advisors have getting getting their clients and compliance on board with the changes they might want to make. I think that's one of the reasons why advisors are so important because you talked about context. And if you looked yeah. at alternative products as standalone products, you'd probably say, I don't know why I should really own this. But if you say, okay, I'm not buying a product, I'm building a portfolio and adding this to a, an overall portfolio makes it yeah. more robust. Uh, makes it more more something that I could live with that will will improve the ex- extend the uh, the uh, the outer boundary of the efficient frontier or getting there the the highest return for the risk I can tolerate then that becomes the sort of win that people will go aha and the light bulb goes on yeah. and people realize aha this is this is why we're doing it um, and and it's not obvious and a lot of people unfortunately you're exactly right Pierre um, they don't want to hear that thesis when things are doing well. And, and markets are going up anyway, and the traditional portfolio is doing fine. And so now what you get is you're actually sort of, you're, you're barring the door after the horse has left the stable, proverbially. You don't actually <laughs> yeah. put in the things to mitigate the risk until the risk mit- mitigation requirement has now more or less passed you by. You, you realize after the fact, well, this is what I should have done. Well, I'm going to do it now. Okay, well, good. And as long as you can you know keep it as part of your strategy going forward, then it's better than nothing, I suppose, but really the best time to do it is as soon as possible. Yeah. And I think one of the things that people, this is an opportunity, right? Speaking again, well, it's an opportunity because I think the first thing that people should take away from today's discussion is to examine everything, right? One of the things that we need to examine is the belief that the Fed managed to rein in inflation in a year, record time. And we're done, we're going to hit 2% and it's over. We can go back to playing 2D chess again, right? I mean, the reality is that for the last 40 years, inflation for developed developed markets has not been an issue, right? If you think about the continuum of what, what the Fed has had to deal with is they've had to inject liquidity when there were growth problems without having to worry at all about inflation, right? Every time they injected money, they couldn't create the inflation even if they wanted to, which is a great thing. It, you're, you're basically investor and advisors, investors, and even the Fed was balancing on a barrel, right? They either had to go forward or backwards. It was a two-dimensional game. It was fairly straight, not easy. Investing has, was never been easy, but you are literally on a two-dimensional scale having to deal with the problems. Just inject money whenever you want growth again. And you'd see these V recoveries and people would benefit from that. They'd recover quickly from these drawdowns. 
As a Latin American, I can tell you that the moment you inject inflation in there, you're no longer balancing yourself on a barrel. You're balancing yourself on the top of a bowl. And, and that creates portfolio gyrations that are unexpected, uh, that are more complicated than you've ever had to deal with. You are now having to understand what the impact of inflation and disinflation have on your portfolio's growth and, and, and negative growth. And in that environment, you don't, the Fed doesn't just come in, do something quickly and fix it. The Fed is going to overshoot it or undershoot over time. And trying to find your balance again from a Fed's perspective after 40 years of having no expertise in doing it is going to take them time. Right? Mm-hmm. When people will be talking about this disinflation, right? But if you took, if you take a look underneath of what's going on with inflation going from 8% to 6, is there's components to it that are transitory for sure. Prices of, of, of asset classes, of gold, of, of uh, oil, of grains. But there's the biggest component, which is labor, that is getting is sticky and is staying higher. Yeah. And it's likely to stay higher for longer. So we might find that we're seeing the overall picture of inflation go down, but they're not seeing this other thing that's stickier and longer. And that's the, the, what happened in the 70s, which is labor inflation. That could, that could mean a whole new paradigm where inflation becomes a really, really tough thing to deal with for the Fed. Fed's going to make mistakes. And if you are still playing mm-hmm. 2D chess or you're still doing that two-dimensional balancing, you're not going to be doing what's best for yourself and your client, right? So again, this yeah. is, I, think, I, I agree, John. I think it's not over. I think it's complicated. I don't know when or what, but to not be prepared. This is not about prediction. Yeah. This is truly about preparation, right? And what you need to do in your portfolio today in spite of what we think is, is over over the last 12 months, what we can do today to just create a, a more balanced portfolio so that you can balance on a ball. So Other I, I, I got a, I got it. I got, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I got a, I got a question for e- either one of you now, like for, for the last, I don't know how long, like for the last couple of years, at least the dollar has been King, right? That's been one of the best performing assets, the U S dollar. Um, now the now the US dollar is coming off its dominance I mean or its strength I mean and uh maybe both um but um if 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 the if what was being said was that when the dollar was strong the US was exporting inflation is the is the reverse true when the dollar weakens is the US now with under a weaker weaker dollar now importing inflation does that not throw a wrench in the works as well? I mean, it's great for commodities. Exporting it's great for English prices. Yeah, exporting disinflation would be the would be the the, the more right. correct uh, uh, incident. Um, I I don't know. I don't really have a strong opinion on that. I that's sort of like the three D chess. So it's maybe I'm moving the, parts. Yeah, the though, guy right? that that's only knows yeah. how to sort of roll a barrel and doesn't know how to stand on a ball. Uh, I, I I'm not sure, and then I that I rod. I'll, leave, I'll let you Look, ask how you many people that. how many people actually it's, understand the dynamics of that no but but it is, but this right? is a thing Pierre. i mean right? how do you like read that yeah this is the point this is the yeah. point yeah <laughs> the point that's is my point yeah that yes that is that is an <laughs> element of this inflation number yeah. right inflation we wrote a, a long piece on the different facets of inflation inflation is a very multifaceted thing but yet in the in the average media you hear the, an inflation number a single inflation number, mainly the U.S. inflation number, not even the Canadian yeah. one, right? Or the global one, the European one. We don't really know or care about those things. So it is, 
it, it is very complicated. Is it supply side inflation? Is it demand, demand side inflation? Is it a little bit of both? Which one's going to be sticky? Which one's not going to be sticky? Right. But the, the big thing, big message here is that we're talking about inflation. Whatever that is, it's here. And the Fed yeah. knows it's here. And I know, like, ask any Brazilian what inflation does to your planning as a business. Right? You, you just, you're just less willing to take a lot of risks to, to outlay a lot of cash up front. You know, it's going to create uncertainty for businesses. It's going to create uncertainty for the investors of those businesses. Right? Inflation volatility is, I think, the, the thing that is more likely to exist in the, in the medium to long term here because it, like I said, it's, it's, we're going to overshoot and undershoot, right? And in this inflation, when there's uncertainty, whether it's through the U.S. dollar or otherwise, when there's uncertainty about cash flow in real terms, what tends to happen is, in, is that the financial markets start lagging the real economy. Okay, let me, let me kind of just take a step back and explain what I mean by that. From 1966 to 1982, the U.S. economic growth was very similar to the U.S. economic growth from 1982 to 1997, right? So 16 years, in the first 16 years, economic-wise, similar growth than it was until 1997. But from financial markets perspective, from 1966 to 1982, the Dow Jones returned around zero, okay? Financial markets lagged the economic reality. But then from 1982 to 1997, the Dow annualized at 16%. So I, I think one of the things we need to understand here is that the price to earnings ratio, the Schiller PE ratio that was at I think 38 in November of 2021 was at five at the tail end of 1981 and 71, right? So again, economic growth the same, but the financial markets are either lagging or they're overshooting. And inflation volatility, uncertainty, people are, are, are going to require a higher risk premium today in order to put real money back into the market. And in fact, there's gonna likely be more, you know, if, if history is any indication, that volatility is going to lead to, to uh, multiple, the multiples collapsing, earnings probably changing, and that's going to take a long time, right? We're not even, we're in the third inning, in my, in my honest opinion. And so there's still nice, time. I, I had about 15 pages of the simply adjusted price earnings uh, uh, that I had in the book that my, my publishers at Dunder and said, take that out. The average reader will <laughs> be able to follow. Uh, and, and so I, I you know, this is Writing books could That's be a fair. Real I mean, <laughs> it is pretty esoteric. You're right. Yeah, it it, it yeah. can be, but just yeah. for the sake of the people you know, staying at home, since I get a chance to actually talk about CAPE, CAPE is the cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio. It was developed by Robert Schiller. Schiller won the Nobel Prize, uh, uh, along with a few other people in, in, in 2013. And uh, he basically, his research was originally applied to, to real estate, but it's also applied to things like stocks. It's notoriously bad at timing markets, so do not use CAPE to time markets. But to your point, Rod, I, uh, I'm, I'm now dating myself. I was in first year university, and my first year economics uh, prof in 1982 said, you can't make money in the stock market. I actually had a prof, first year <laughs> university, was, you cannot make money in the stock market yeah. because from 1966 to 1982, he hadn't. And, and so now everyone's fighting the last war, and this guy's convinced that for the better part of a generation, he had made money, and therefore, if he can't, no one can, and therefore, don't even try. So it's funny how a lot of people will will look at what they've experienced in, in the past and say, "Well, this is this is the way things go." And then also the other thing that I'll touch on with the cape for um, 
for the S&P 500 being at 38 about 15 months ago was that uh, I talked earlier about the DK uh, not being back to where it was. Well, that's because the DK 225 was in the 80s in 1989. Yeah, that was bonkers. So, 1989, uh, again, this is the point <laughs> that I would make is that for the people who say, oh, I'm a 60-40 investor or I'm whatever, if you, if you have a set asset mix and you don't pay attention to things like valuations, like BE ratios or, or CAPE ratios, you can be unwittingly taking on a massive amount of risk and think that you're disciplined because I'm a 60-40 investor. Yeah, okay. But if you've got six, if you're in, if you're in Tokyo or in Kyoto or in Osaka and you've got almost all of your 60% in equities in Japanese equities and the, and the CAPE on the, on the, on the Nikkei is, is 83, Holy, are you taking on a lot of uncompensated risk? And, and those people, I'm sure the, the very last majority had no clue. They know it now because they paid yeah. for it the hard way. But, but most people today don't, don't realize that. And so again, the Cape at 38, um, less than just over a year ago, was I think the second highest reading in, in history for the Cape and the S&P 500 after only, only after the, uh, the technology bubble. And a lot of people were, were fat and happy and making money and they didn't realize that they were exposing themselves to risk. And we've seen some of that come off now. And I think the Cape is in the mid twenties for the S&P 500 now. But again, that's with the, with the, you know, the overnight rate being much, much higher. So you can, you can sustain a higher Cape ratio if the, if the, uh, if the alternative, the, uh, you know, the risk-free rate is close to zero, but if the risk-free rate is getting up to four or 5%, you best be looking at a lower valuation in order to manage your risk. Otherwise, you're going to be in for a world hurt, my friend. So that's I can get, I, the best you're all thinking about. Or 100%. Solid, and I can get into the math yeah. of it, but it yeah, really yeah. is just common sense here. If, the, if there's more uncertainty of future cash flows, investors will demand a lower entry price before they put a lot of money to work. It's just the way it works. So if you look at high inflation volatility periods, like the 1900s to the 1920s, or 1940s and 50s, uh, uh, 70s, uh, the, the, the decade of the 70s, the average uh, Cape PE was in the single digits. Now, as the rates start going down and, and inflation volatility <laughs> gets lower and there's more certainty of future cash flows and people are yeah, much more willing to let go of their money because the future is more certain in their eyes, right? So this is when growth stocks go through the roof, all right? So it's just, it is something Again, you're right. You can't use this to time the market. You would have been you would have been out of the market for for ten years. But it is an important thing to take into account as you're creating a long term investment policy statement that understands the risks that you're taking that may or may not materialize. But you need to understand that in in your lifetime may or may not materialize, right? Or in your personal investment horizon. But it needs to be assessed. And you need to be able to understand what happens if the worst case scenario happens and what you can put in your portfolio to offset those. That's it. So, yeah, I do think the key thing here is not to think that it's over, that the chaos is over. I don't know. The chaos may be another bull market that, and, and I'm wrong another, for another 10 years, but there is, yeah. there is going to be dispersion. There's going to be opportunities and there's going to be losses and asset classes that your intuition would have told you historically that are not likely to happen. So again, it's, it really is a good time still to reassess your options and what you can do for, for investors. Well, one thing I think that's, that's uh, funny, sorry, John, and then uh, is that, is that it seems at times, well, it seems quite a bit that, that um, investors, you know, people who are in the markets are actually hoping for this, for, you know, this much anticipated or most anticipated recession 
to actually happen so that the Fed is forced into into cutting, right? Sure. And but but really, what are the consequences of this actual recession occurring? Uh, of a million people being out of work in the U.S. Uh, following the aftermath of of the slowdown that they're talking about, what are the actual consequences to earnings and and demand? And I mean, there's so much destruction that happens in order for that to actually happen, so that you get the cutting. And then and then does the actual cutting? I mean, if people are making forecasts based on on their expectation that the Fed is going to cut then what, again, these are the moving parts, right? What, what is the actual outcome? What does it do to, what does it do to stocks? You know, it'll, most likely it'll benefit bonds. If yields drop, you know, we'll have the, 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 uh, the duration benefit from bonds, but it won't, it, it, it may or may, you know, it's, it's anyone's guess as to what happens to stock prices. You know, the market, that hair trigger that I was talking about before, where the market reacts positively to bad news, you know, the, the bad news is good news uh, idea. Um, you know, what happens if the recession actually becomes very firmly bad news is bad news, period. You know, and, and, and again, that's an unknown. I'm not saying that that's what's going to happen, but, but you know, what, you know, we have, we have very little idea except for 08 and 09 what another recession looks like. Especially, think, you know, given, yeah, go ahead, John. Sorry. The people who are talking about a pivot um, are, are saying either that central banks are in serious or central banks will lose their nerve or whatever. But uh, looking at it objectively, if, if we have, say, another 50 basis points in hikes on both sides of the border over the course of the next six or so days, and, and then we have a pause, not a pivot, a pause, mm-hmm. we just keep rates where they are, and then... And then, and then what happens to the economy? Uh, I would think that as inflation is still running in, in the mid-single digits, I don't think you can really afford to have a pause. You, you have to still keep on fighting that inflation in order to get it down to the stated objective of 2%, give or take 1%. At some point, it will be a house of cards and it will fall down. The only time when you actually can start pivoting is when there's pain. So it, it needs to be a two-step process. You need to basically manufacture pain and, and, and cause jobs to be lost. And then when the jobs are lost and, and, and mortgage rates are higher than anybody has experienced in their past generation, uh, there will be foreclosures, not only because of rates being high, but because of people who are trying, if you're a two-income family and one of the two yeah. people loses their job, um, it's, it's hard enough to keep on making the mortgage payments when they were at at 2%. But now that they're at five and a half or six, uh, one, one on one income, uh, you're probably going to lose that house. And so now you have yeah, absolutely like no one's everything going wrong. And, and that's when you actually finally have a pivot, but you need to have significant pain first. I don't think you can pivot without the pain. So, uh, yeah. for those people who are, who are cheering on saying, bring on the pivot, what they're really saying, in my opinion is, bring on the pain so we can pivot. Because I, I do not see any scenario whereby central bankers can pivot unless we actually start seeing significant job losses and significantly down, significant downward pressure on inflation, which I, it's, it's downward pressure, but it's nowhere near enough at this point. Well, yeah. And, there, and you know, to, to your point, John, on the mortgage payments being, you know, the largest, one of the largest components to consider, 
you know, what are what, what are the payments now? They're two and a half times what they were a year ago for anybody renewing. So so you know, two and a half x on on, on your mortgage payment. So now, if you had a a five thousand dollar payment a year ago, now it's twelve five. <laughs> yeah. Look, and, right? and, but again, all of this. I'm sorry, a five thousand dollar payment right? is you know. All of this yeah. but a two thousand dollar payment and now it's spotted. It's it's still significant. Yeah. That's three thousand dollars a month. That's, a... that's forty six thousand dollars a year. Most most middle class dummies don't have that kind of money hiding under the mattress. It's just it's yeah, just and, and then the longer if if rates are longer are are higher for longer or or even level for longer, um, without a pivot, then then you know as time goes by, more and more people are renewing or trying to renew their mortgages going forward right as they as they roll over and uh, then you start to see some real problems for the for folks who had five-year mortgages you know pinned at let, let, let's say three percent uh they're probably okay for a while but but for anybody else that that's got a variable or anyway i i think i think that alone is is a serious consideration just to put in context of what we're talking about which is that you know portfolios need to be more fortified they need to you know you, you need to stop you know, looking at the short-term possibilities of what will happen in the market this year and start looking at, at how can you build a portfolio that that has, a, you know, sustainability, that has, uh, and I don't mean the ESG kind, I just mean, you know, that has a sustainable outlook where, where you know, you have the, the instruments uh, along with the equities and bonds um, to provide either the return enhancement or the... Uh, risk mitigation, the volatility mitigation uh, against against the traditional assets that you're holding. Right. Amen. So, John, without with uh, it's been, uh, I think we could probably go on for uh, uh, you know quite a while longer talking about this. But, John, without without giving away the climax of your book, do you have well, any takeaways? <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> I'm just being funny now, but there's got to be, you know, it must, I, I'm guessing as with most books and essays, it comes to a conclusion at the end about, about what comes next or what to do next. But um, without giving that away, uh, no, I'll, do you want people I'm to, to? I'm happy to give you yeah. a broad brushstroke without going into specifics. So the, uh, the the main point here is that you and you and working either individually as an investor or in concert with an advisor, may be unwittingly taking on more risk because of optimism bias than you think, and you may not be doing enough to prepare yourself for it because it hasn't been a problem ever in your investing lifetime. And as a result of that, you're, you're being blindsided by, by your, your sort of, there's a, there's a sense of complacency that I see your investors have in 2023 that they should have hopefully learned a lesson from what could, what, what could happen by what happened in 2022. I don't think we're out of the woods with regard to COVID. I think there are a lot of stir. There's a chapter here on public policy because I'm a policy wonk. There's you know some experiences about the media and what the media does. There are a number of different culprits, if you want to, to blame culprits, but ultimately it rests with you, the investor, to, to make an informed decision about what you're doing with your portfolio. And the thing that I would say more than anything else is you need to guard against being overly optimistic to the point of being naive, to the point of being hubristic, to the point of actually thinking this will be fine because it always has been fine up until now. Just because it worked in the past doesn't mean it will work in the future. Please, please stop, reassess, think about what you're looking, uh, what you're hoping to achieve, 
And 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 a great way to game this out is to have what's called a a uh, a pre-mortem. You know how when people die, the murder mystery, they have a post-mortem to figure out who done it and whether or not he was poisoned or if the hmm. if the you know if the right. gun killed him before the knife killed him or whatever else. Um, this is a situation where you can look at your portfolio and if you think about okay, what happens if, as Rod says, we have long systemic inflation? Have you thought about that? What happens if we have a situation where the CAPE ratio goes from 27 down to seven? What happens, and, and have I thought about all the different things that could go wrong? And none of them, I'm not predicting any of them will go wrong necessarily. I, I, I think I've said this five or six times on this episode here. This is not a prognostication. This is a earnest request to stop and reflect upon what you're doing and to guard against what could go wrong, even if it doesn't actually go wrong. Excellent. I love that. And, and John, as an advisor, yeah, I love it. I just, uh, one more thing. As an advisor and a PM, what is the solid takeaway that you can urge advisors? Every single person on the planet is biased. So you as an advisor are biased. I'm not saying that it's criticism. I'm not saying that as a diss or anything like that. Not at all. To be to be biased is to be human. We're all human. We're all biased. I'm biased. This is not this is not sort of casting aspersions on anyone else. This is right. saying acknowledge that as a human you're going to be biased. And and as a biased human, you need if you're going to be giving advice to retail clients, you need to come to terms with whatever your biases are or may be, and reflect upon what they may be, and do an inventory about am I biased with regard to being optimistic and uh, am I biased with regard to my past experience? Am I, am I anchoring on, uh, on, on my, on my various performance numbers or portfolio numbers? Am, am I thinking about the status quo bias and it always worked in the past? Am I, am I, whatever it is, am I engaging in some form of narrative fallacy where I've got a story that I'm telling people to, in order to justify what happened in the past and maybe I can use that to justify things in the future. There's a whole host of cognitive biases that we are all subject to, and that especially um, is a is a factor for advisors because advisors hold themselves out as being behavioral coaches. And how can you be a, an effective behavioral coach if you're not even fully mindful of the biases that you yourself have? How can you give someone else advice as to how to manage their biases and manage their behavior if you're not even fully aware of your own behavioral quirks? <laughs> so you need to do a careful inventory of what you're doing yourself in order to do a better job for your clients. And that's what we all want. Excellent point, John. Thank you so much. Yeah. Very good. And, and yeah, and thank you so much for your, your incredibly valuable time, John. It, it's been, uh, it's been an amazing discussion. I think, um, lots of food for thought. Thank and you. And where can people Pierre? find you, John? So yeah. I get a hold of you. Pierre, Rod, thank you very much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Um, I have a, uh, uh, my advisory site is uh, standupadvisors.ca. If you want to just read more about my book and my blogs and, and, and the other things that I, and, and uh, the articles I've written and, and where I've appeared, uh, you can go to standup.today. So in both cases, it's standup. So standupadvisors with an O, advisors.ca or standup.today. Excellent. Amazing. Excellent. Thanks, John. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.